Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, Today's uh, episode is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors, but I'm not sure who they are at this moment. So, We'll stay tuned. It'll be exciting for all of us. So if there are, if there are two grand themes of this podcast, um, I shouldn't say that. There are probably about 10 grand themes of this podcast. But two of those top 10 have got to be Congress sucks and brown liquor is good. And, um, and since I think it's really vitally important to go ever deeper on both of these themes, uh, we thought it was vital to get um, a double threat. My colleague from the American Enterprise Institute, Kevin Kosar. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the Remnant. Thanks for having me on. So you are you are the co-editor of a new um, uh, report on or study or volume, I should say. Sorry, I'm for listeners. I'm very frazzled. There's domestic craziness going on, and my brain is going a thousand miles a minute. Um, uh, about c- how Congress is overwhelmed. Um, the full volume, you're the co-editor and the full volume is Congress overwhelmed the decline in congressional capacity and prospects for reform. So why don't we just sort of start with the decline in capacity and then we'll get to reform in a little bit and then we'll save the whiskey and other brown liquor conversation for the end. If that's all right with you. All righty. So why is it overwhelmed? How is it overwhelmed? Why should we nuke it from orbit, just to be sure? Well, um, in simplest terms, the um, responsibilities of Congress grow with each passing decade. uh, But the capacity it has to deal with these problems has gone down. Take, for example, the number of citizens, voters in this grand country of ours. Since 1980, it's gone up a ton, tens of millions of more citizens. But we do have do we have more representatives in Congress? No. What about congressional staff? Actually, we have fewer congressional staff. So there are fewer people on the Hill, more responsibilities. And government, by the way, keeps getting bigger and bigger. I mean, one of the things that Congress is supposed to do is to oversee where the money is going. And to pay attention to the executive branch. But government is getting bigger and there are fewer people on the Hill to do it. That's a problem. Um, because I, so when you say there's more for it to do, I, I, I completely 
um, agree with the growing population point. Just if you think about what's entailed with constituent services and you think of it as customer service and you quintuple the number of customers without increasing your staff, you're going to have problems. I agree with you on there. And as a almost three decade member of let's expand Congress club, um, um, I'm curious to talk to you about that, but at the same time for a lot of conservatives and others just simply worried about Congress being, as you put it, overwhelmed. Um, part of the argument is that there's, I mean, that there's less for it to do, right? Because they have outsourced so many of their responsibilities mm -hmm. to the administrative state, to the executive branch, to the judicial branch. Um, and you now get to the point where it doesn't even occur to some of the younger congressmen that they should be doing anything other than going on TV. I mean, the, the Matt Gates crowd, they think they're that running for Congress is like winning American idol so that you can be a pundit. Um, uh, so how do you square your point about how there's more, their responsibilities have grown and yet the things they actually try to do, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is if, if I heard you say that your the responsibilities have grown, it conjures it, at least briefly in my mind, an image of these people being overwhelmed with work when in fact, it seems like they're not interested in doing the work that they're being overwhelmed with. Do I have that wrong? No, no, no. It's a absolutely valid. Um, you know, one of the things that we found when we did a um, survey of, of Capitol Hill uh, and looked at staffing trends is that, you know, the, the number of staffers and in the House of Representatives, for example, has not gone up since the 1980s. But the percentage of those staffers who are devoted to communications activities has gone up. And the percentage of those staffers who are back home in the district doing constituent service has gone up, mm -hmm. which means that the number of staff who can do policy has gone down. Right, right. Um, which, you know, trying to be a congressional staffer and follow five different, you know, broad areas of policy welfare, foreign policy, et cetera, all at once means that you're not going to do any of them particularly well. But no, uh, you know, a big issue we do have is that the whole mindset of what is your job has slid. Um, Bill saw in political sciences that there were workhorses on Capitol Hill. These are the people who busted their butts to learn a topic and to conduct oversight and to make policy. And they beavered away in committees. Uh, and then there were show horses, people who just lived to stick their faces in front of cameras and to talk to media. And I think the ratio of uh, show horses to workhorses has gotten way out of kilter. Yeah. I mean, I've always disliked the show horse versus workhorse thing because I always thought it left out a third category, um, which for want of a better equine metaphor, I would say were the mules, were mm. just these old hackish stubborn <laughs> people who neither worked yeah. hard nor did media. I mean, every now and then I used mm -hmm. to get asked to go speak to Republican members for one caucus thing or another. And the number of them who struck me as old geezers who simply just kept getting promoted up the glad handing chain who couldn't string two sentences together on TV, but also couldn't do any serious work except maybe protecting some specific industry or constituency in their district was really kind of amazing. Um, I don't know how mm -hmm. many of them have disappeared, but they tended to be largely from Pennsylvania, 
memory serves. But anyway, <laughs> um, so, um, you know, our, our, our colleague, Yuval Levin, he makes this case, which I'm very, very sympathetic to, and I've been meaning to write more about, that, you know, the great project of the conservative movement in the 1970s into the 1980s was launching the conservative legal movement to make a serious and sustained effort to make the courts more in line with what their constitutional role should be. And mixed success, federal society, you know, there were definitely some successes, definitely in terms of Supreme Court fights and whatnot. But he, he makes this case that one of the things con the conservative movement needs to do now is switch gears and make this argument about Congress, that Congress mm -hmm. is supposed to do what it's supposed to do because in many ways it's even more wayward and, and, and off mission than the courts were um, prior to the conservative legal movement. Um, do you think that's, I mean, is, is that, the, I mean, I don't want to get you in trouble with Yuval, but is that the right way to think about it? Oh, no, it's absolutely, it's, uh, it's pretty much what I've committed the last six or seven years of my life to doing. Uh, you know, prior to that, I was at the Congressional Research Service where I worked directly with the Hill uh, every day. I spent a, more than a decade doing that, and then I privatized myself and went to think tank land uh, for the opportunity to work on Congress as an institution and to, yeah, absolutely start addressing the, the gross dissonance between the way legislators are behaving and spending their time and the way that the, the whole institution has slid into anachronism uh, versus the Constitution and the extraordinarily high expectations that the Constitution has for legislators. And you look at Article 1 and compare it to Article 2 and Article 3, like on paper, all power is right. supposed to be with Congress. And those other two branches are, you know, they're not equals even. Right. They're branches, but they're not equals. But the reality right now is the, the flip of that. You know, Congress is an afterthought. When we think about policymaking and change making at the national level, our brain goes to a president or the judiciary. And that's that's no good. Yes. I mean, I'm, you're forgiven for not knowing this, but one of the great themes of this podcast is my bouse doing rage anytime anyone refers to the three branches as co-equal um, because uh, it's Nixonian propaganda that uh, doesn't really emerge in any scholarship until the 1970s. If you go and look in the Federalist Papers, the the word co-equal appears like seven times, but it's always in reference to either the House to the Senate as co-equal, which is fair, or the federal government to the state governments as co-equal. But this idea that the three, you know, the executive, judicial, and 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 legislative branches are co-equal is nonsense when you think about the fact that Congress can fire people from other the two branches. The other two branches can't do anything to Congress. Um, Congress declares war, Congress raises taxes, which the founding fathers cared about. It creates the judiciary. It creates most of the executive branch. I mean, it's the Supreme branch. Um, and so uh, I want to stay on this, how this happened part, but just since I indulged my own obsessions on this, um, where do you come down on the impeachment question? It seems to me that if Congress still took itself seriously as an institution, it would not have thought twice about impeaching a president who unleashed a mob on it while it was performing its duties. But that's my view on it. Where do you come down on this? What do you, if you had a similar fact pattern 150 years ago, what, you know, what, where would Daniel Webster come out on all this? 
Yeah, yeah. No, um, it's true that what few impeachments we've had, the votes have been pretty much along party line, you know, back there with Andrew, you know, Andrew Johnson and all that. Um, yet nonetheless, I mean, this was so bad. And you could see it was happening the whole way along. And that, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I wish more in the chamber would stand up for themselves. Yeah. And uh, the electoral consequences be damned. Um, but doesn't seem like that's what we're going to get, uh, which is uh, tragic. So if you had to explain to a class um, or some of our wonderful AI interns or research assistants, this process of how Congress got overwhelmed, um, what's, the, what's the story you tell? When does it start? Who other than Woodrow Wilson can we get mad at? Um, <laughs> and... Um, uh, and when and also just when did you know there's that all old saw sort of like the workhorse show horse thing there's also that old saw about how um can't remember who dirksen or one of these guys says look the democrats aren't aren't the enemy they're the opposition the the senate's the the enemy right there used to be this notion that house Mm -hmm. and senate had more of an institutional understanding of themselves that was not partisan but sort of their role in the constitutional order I've always wondered whether that's always been a bit of nostalgic BS, but anyway, what, what's the story you tell about how Congress got into this state of dysfunction? Well, um, Congress falling, you know, falling behind, you know, kind of losing the capacity to govern is a natural development. Um, why? Well, people demand stuff from government. So Congress creates a new program, creates a new agency. And, you know, as these activities aggregate over time, the amount of work gets bigger. You know, it's one thing to say our duties this year are to appropriate funds for five agencies and oversee them. But when you talk about 50 agencies, that's a lot more work. Because, of course, come, other things come with it. you got to do the nominees to head these agencies and all that sort of stuff. So Congress has this habit of responding to the people creating more government, more programs, which creates more work for itself. But then it lags in investing in itself to be able to keep up with it. So, you know, like right now we're at a point where each year Congress gets between 25 and 30 million um, communications from constituents, which comes out to like 46,000 communications per office. They're just not equipped to respond to those things and to, you know, like a corporation would have a whole call center <laughs> that they've invested in and be crunching data about when people are calling and what they're calling about and have a serious operation to be able to manage the people's expectations and feelings. Congress doesn't have that. So the habit is that Congress periodically reinvests in itself. It has a spasm of reform. The 1940s was an example. The 1970s, early 70s was another example. Back then they created CBO. They took the, uh, legislative reference service and turned it into the think tank, the Congressional Research Service. They created the Office of Technology Assessments since they realized that the executive branch better understood technology than than Congress did. They invested in themselves. They also staffed up a lot, but pretty much there's not been any reform since then. Mm -hmm. And 50 years has gone by and governance has got government's gotten bigger, more complicated. No no surprise Congress is not able to competently govern. 
was the contract with America period. I mean, if, to listen to Newt Gingrich, he would say that was a period of reform. I increasingly mm-hmm. don't see it that way anymore. I thought it was at the time, but I kind of think in many respects, a lot of it was a step backwards. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Newt was very big on uh, showing the American people that Congress was under new management. And uh, he was he was right to say that Congress needed to be better managed. There had been all sorts of scandals and sleazy stuff going on. There was a post office scandal, there was a page scandal. There was, all, there was so much going on that, was, uh, that the Democrats were engaged in that, that was skeezy. But where he erred was that he started cutting away Congress's capacity. Mm-hmm. You know, the Government Accountability Office, people whose job it is to bring facts and figures and to study stuff, raise red flags when agencies are doing things that are naughty, he cut their staff 25%. Mm-hmm. He zeroed out the Office of Technology Assessment. Um, he also cut the um, number of committee staff. So, you know, committees are supposed to be the place that you do policymaking and oversight. And guess what? There are fewer of those people. And then he flowed staff upward to the Speaker's office. And now, you know, we kind of see the logical consequence of that, which is a lot of legislators feel like eunuchs. Mm-hmm. They're standing around. They can't really do anything other than make noise and wave their arms. And all the power is at the top of the institution. Yeah. Um, so what do you want to do about it? I mean, first of all, what can, let me put it this way. What, do you, what is your dream scenarios? If you could wave your magic wand and do have three reforms that you think aren't compromises, but really just your swing for the fences reforms. And then what do you think is actually possible? Yeah, uh, that's a tough question. Well, I I guess one thing I should say as a preface is that um, I would like more of the political right to think like legislators. Mm -hmm. I think the political right has become very enamored of presidents, and a lot of them are also judicial supremacists, and they just don't have any concept of like what Congress should do, nor do they put much value on it. Right. and I need more on the political right to come around to seeing like, yeah, Article One of the Constitution means something and we should make it mean something. That's an important step. As for the chamber itself, I mean, uh, to be clear, it's not just a matter of staffing. I mean, everything needs redone. Mm-hmm. Uh, budget process. What a wreck. Hasn't been upgraded since 1974. The way we budget in this com- country is shameful. That needs redone entirely. Committees. We haven't, you know, the types of committees we have, the number, the jurisdictions of the committees. We haven't changed that in decades. Reality has moved on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 it's nuts. The way we do congressional hearings, it's like fight club for C-SPAN. Yeah. You know, it, a lot of time being wasted doing that. Uh, it's the technology up there. Uh, there's a member of Con- Congress, uh, Representative Timmons, who a few years ago when he arrived was shocked that he was handed a pager <laughs> as part of his job. And he was like, what is this for? And it's like, oh, this is to tell you when there are votes. And he's like, why is there not an app for this? Oh, well, we just don't have that. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Like, so it's the whole place. I mean, if you had a crappy company that was failing its customers, you would look everything top to bottom mm-hmm. and start fixing stuff. And that's what I advocate. And it's going to take a long time. So, um, getting back to just for a second on how the, so part of the story that I tell 
about why it's terrible is first of all, I think the founders, you know, what is two thumbs and loves the founders, this guy, but, uh, the, the founders just blew it in, in, in thinking that Congress would always be a zealous guardian of its own power and privileges. And, um, you know, maybe it's because it happens over time. And so you don't, the, the entropic nature of it was something they couldn't foresee. Who knows? I mean, but it just, they turned out to be wrong about that. Right. But then second, um, I am another of the top 10 themes of this podcast is that primaries are bad and that the primary system has changed the incentive structure so that people who go to Congress and in part is the big sort and polarization and all these things, the people go to the Congress are um, more scared of primary challenges than they are to of general election challenges. And so therefore the incentive structure to never take any risks that get you on the wrong side of Fox news or MSNBC or whatever it is, is very, very strong um, for the majority making guys who are in those purplish districts. Most of them, the other part is the, the polarization in general is really bad. And that imposes even greater purity test dynamics. Um, because it seems to me that like most of the problems that we see in our politics about this polarization stuff, I don't think primaries are entirely responsible for it by any stretch of the imagination. There are lots of other things going on, but it charts pretty well with the rise of primaries and, and, mm -hmm. um, and you just, you, I meet people in Congress all the time who just tell me that I think the, the desire to be reelected re is the same as it's always been, but the path towards reelection now goes through primaries in a way it didn't before. Um, do you think that's wrong? Do you think, you know, what, what is the other incentive structure that has encouraged, what is the incentive structure within Congress that has led these, led to a certain type of person going to Congress who, who doesn't want to use power and that punishes people that try to actually be legislators or governors. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on, uh, on primaries. Um, you know, so few people vote in them and it tends to be the most ideologically motivated. And uh, yeah, they're a problem. And I'm very glad that there are assorted movements around this country to create open primaries, to do things like, um, you know, a final five voting structure or rank choice sort of thing, which will, you know, give us representatives who are much more actually representative of us um, as opposed to representing extremists. But there, you know, there's all sorts of factors involved. I mean, one thing that has uh, changed the way legislators behave is uh, television cameras mm -hmm. and more eyeballs on their behavior. I mean, you, you read about what the life of a legislator was like, you know, 70 years ago. And, you know, it was like you're being sent to an island, right. you know, uh, you, you might have the local or state newspaper reporter who would follow you around on Capitol Hill and you would you know, have drinks with the person and tell him what you're up to. And he would write a nice column about you. Uh, but now, like, you know, you've all lived right. I mean, each legislator feels like they have to be a media star. And of course, you know, we put a camera on somebody, they're going to act up. They're going to do things that translate to that medium. And uh, I do put also a, a load of uh, blame upon the media itself. I mean, the old saw, if it bleeds, it reads, um, has been uh, intensified 
by the competition in the media space. I mean, you just don't see many stories about Congress doing things right. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Lamar Alexander gave a wonderful speech at the end of his uh, career this past year, where he talked about all these things that had been done, like the, ba- the massive National Parks bill and all that sort of stuff. But you just don't get much coverage of that. Instead, it's yeah. Fight Club, it's Marjorie Taylor Greene, and it's her insanity. It's the Mitch versus Nancy punch fest. Um, you know, I don't know how to reverse that, yeah. but that that just fuels the cynicism, and it also discourages legislators from trying to do the hard stuff that's worth doing. Yeah, why yeah. bother? Nobody's yeah. going to know about it. Yeah, no, I mean it's. Uh, I mean, I I agree. Media coverage is a is a problem in all sorts of ways. I mean, part of it also is like it is now considered like normal to assign some 25 year old to cover Congress and they cover it like it's a college campus, you know, where, you know, yeah. did you hear who's popular, who's not popular and all that kind of thing. Um, and uh, I, I don't know necessarily how you fix it. I mean, we're trying to fix that a little bit with the dispatch, but it's, it's, it's an endemic thing. So you think, so you're mm-hmm. on, you're on the team that says, while C-SPAN cameras was well, were well-intentioned, it was actually turned out to be a bad idea, or no? You know, um, I think it's fine if they want to have the cameras on the floor. Uh, the floor is not real, the, where the real action happens. Um, but the cameras in committees is an issue. Um, you know, I suppose a, compl- you know, a middle ground might be like, okay, we can show what's happening in committees, but we're going to have some sort of delay in when the video is going to be released. Mm-hmm. Because this, you know, I mean, we've gotten to the point now where legislators are going into committees thinking about how can they fundraise mm-hmm. by acting up in the committees. And like that, you know, what's the point of having a hearing? Right. It's not serving oversight. It's not serving fact-finding or policymaking purposes. It's, uh, it's just become a stunt. And uh, yeah, I think we do have to figure things out. I mean, we saw a classic instance of what how legislators will behave differently when they're in the public eye versus not in the public eye. You know, the vote um, on impeachment versus the vote on Liz Cheney. Right. The Liz Cheney vote was secret. Well, guess what? More people voted their conscience as right. opposed to worrying that they had to deal with a MAGA mob if they went along with the plan to, to boot Liz Cheney. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I, I should also say that one of the things that's broken down in Congress is that, the, you know, like any other organization, it socializes new members. It used to be the case that, you know, if you were new to Congress, you had old dogs who had a hierarchical system that they would socialize you into. You had a mm-hmm. role to play. You had bounds of acceptable behavior. And, of course, you still had your wild men who would, ignore all of that and put a thumb in the geezer's eyes. But there was expectations about how you should spend your time and when you should speak up and what your role should be. And all that has kind of melted away. Now your job when you come to DC is get on a bus full of Democrats and go get socialized to be a good rabid Democrat. Uh, Get on a bus to go to an initiation where you become a good GOP member. Uh, Follow leadership talking points. Don't cross leadership. Um, and raise money for the party. That's what your job is. And get the hell out of town after being here for three days and go back to your district so you don't get primaried. Yeah. That's that's what they get trained to do. 
Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's no way to socialize members of an organization. If you want to be successful, the, uh, on the camera committee thing, it never really dawned on me how bad it was until the Bill Barr hearings about a year and a half ago, something like, you know, time is a flat circle now, but, um, where, uh, it had been a while since I had watched an important hearing from beginning to end and the degree to which Democrats who insisted that they wanted to get to the bottom of whatever it was Barr was there testifying about and, and they had the goods on them. It was basically the same questions being asked by every committee member the same way with the same speech. And then they wouldn't let Barr answer. And, and it was, as it was explained to me by, you know, GOP consultant types, it's because everybody wants to have that video soundbite that they use for fundraising. And that old thing about how like um, everything has been said, but not everybody has said it. They all had to have be on record because what they were going to send to their constituents wouldn't be redundant because the constituents weren't watching the whole hearing. They just wanted to be on record with them saying they were shocked and outraged or whatever. And it was a problem for both Republicans and Democrats. And that was more show trial-y than anything I've seen, you know, because it was purely done as kabuki theater for video content and not actually any notion of real oversight. Um, I wanted to hear what Barr had to say. And Barr was like, you know, do any of you want me to answer these questions? And even the Republicans wouldn't let him answer the question because they want to do their little sermonettes. And so, like, if you actually wanted Barr to defend himself, you would have said, hey, you know, Attorney General, take my time and answer those these charges and but they didn't want to give him that either it was purely prop yeah. work and it was it was grotesque and that that's what that was what made me say all right just get the cameras out of there um because this this is not how democracy is supposed to work um yeah a um a friend of mine a few years ago uh self-published a little book called floor charts and it's made up of some of the most ridiculous like screenshots of members of Congress with various charts that they're holding up, you know, like <laughs> Ronald Reagan riding a dinosaur or this sort of stuff. And this book would, would not be possible, you know, but for the fact that, yeah, these guys are treating their positions as basically, you know, I'm not in a chamber governing. I'm in a studio. Right. I'm producing media that's right. going to be used to reelect me and to stick it to the other party. So what would actually be required in a, like, let's say the Speaker of the House invites you in and says, you're going to be part of my team. Um, we want to get to a healthy Congress again um, that takes its responsibilities seriously. What would actually be the program that you would, you know, in the realm of the possible, how, how would you advise them? Okay let's do this first. Let's do this second. I mean, what, what, what are the concrete things that you could actually conceivably do? Yeah, I guess the first thing I would, would say, which would probably get me thrown out on my ear is, uh, the way you are running the chambers in a very top down sort of way doesn't work. It's understandable. You think that the way to keep your party in power is to basically script each Congress. Like, we're going to have this bill first to send this message. We're going to have this bill second and this third. And we're going to take this stand and do this sort of thing. 
I understand it, but guess what? It doesn't work. In fact, partisan control of Congress that has shifted back and forth from one party to another at a more rapid rate than it has since just after the Civil War. So if you think running the place in a top-down way guarantees partisan success, the facts show otherwise. And, you know, maybe we should go back to running Congress the way it ran before 1980, which was to delegate power and to let committees be the place where the action is at. And you shall be known by your deeds. Like, okay, right now, if you're um, a committee chairman, your incentives lie not with making policy, but with putting on show hearings. Why? Because you have your job because you were put on the committee by the head of the chamber. So you're supposed to carry the program. You know, you're supposed to perform your part. That's what you're supposed to do. This is a novel way of running Congress, doing this the way we have the last 40 years, and it's not working. You know, Congress has a lot of work to do. The way you do it is you break that work up and you have committees work upon it. Mm -hmm. And you give them the power to decide and then to get the legislation to the floor. That's another problem. Calendar control in both chambers, forget it. You're a chairman, you are begging to get your legislation considered. And leadership, we'll look at the political optics. Do we want this bill to be voted upon by the whole chamber? Nah, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter mm-hmm. if you have a majority. Doesn't matter if it's the right thing to do. They just won't do it because they're so concerned with running this thing from the top. And it's just a failed strategy. And as long as it keeps going, it's nothing's going to change. So you've got to dev- devolve power. So. I was part, you know, of uh, of the things, you know, the Trump era has caused me to do a, a a rigorous personal inventory of a lot of my preconceived positions on all sorts of things. And for the most part, I come out on a lot of the big sort of philosophical places the same. But um, on some specific policy things, uh, I'm I'm wavering a bit. And one of them was getting rid of earmarks. And I'm sure you know the argument, right? But, but like, like at the time I thought it was, I was very Gingrichian, let's say, which sounds very Dickensian, but I was, you know, I, <laughs> they were a sign of the, the rot in Congress and they were corrupt and blah, 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 blah. And, and yet when you look back at how much money they added to the actual debt or deficit was infinitesimal. And moreover, that stuff actually for the most part was about actually helping constituents like you know earmarks were about the bread and butter stuff i mean not all of them to be sure and anyway i just it seems to me like that used to be the kind of sort of internal chit or currency within congress that actually moved legislation forward and when you got rid of it it lent more importance to this sort of top down optics-driven, media-driven approach. Where, where do you come, come down on all that? Yeah, well, funny enough, uh, just a few days ago, uh, AEI released a, a paper I wrote with uh, uh, Claremont McKenna College professor Zachary Corser on restoring the power of the purse and earmarks. And, uh, you know, it's really simple. You know, do we, it, it goes back to James Madison. He says, you got to c- connect the interest of the man to the constitutional you know, rights of the place. 
Do you want legislators to behave like legislators? Well, if so, then you got to give them the power to behave like legislators. And that means making policy and directing where resources go. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to, you know, expecting them to be, you know, I mean, it's kind of a progressive idea that we expect these guys to be a bunch of moralists, stand up and just do what's right. right. And what's right, of course, these days is defined by the party line. And yeah, our, um, our paper looked at it. We interviewed former members of Congress. We had no idea what they would say about earmarks with Dems and Republicans equally. And then we crunched some numbers looking at, you know, how Congress legislated right before the earmark ban and right afterwards. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the ability to assemble a majority declined, which means it's harder to pass a bill. And it's obvious if you as a member are given a choice, do I vote for this bill, even though it's pushed by the other party because there's an earmark in it that's going to build a new clinic in my home state or fix a broken dam or whatever? Or do I vote the party line? Right. Well, there you have a choice to make between ideology and actually helping your voters. You take that stuff away and guess what? People are going to vote ideology because they got no other reason to vote otherwise. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's that's a great way of thinking about it. And and, and I, I just, the, the, if you think the debt and the deficit stuff is important as I do, and if you think about what is required to, um, make structural reforms, giving every single congressman a new bridge or a dam or a clinic or a stadium or whatever in exchange for a vote that does something serious with Medicare and Medicaid or social security. Yeah pennies on the dollar savings, right? I mean, it, over the long haul. And, and, and the fact of the matter is that when it comes to earmarks, we're not increasing spending. We're just simply deciding who makes the decision over where the dollars go. Mm-hmm. If it's not a member of Congress who decides which road gets fixed, it's going to be an anonymous bureaucrat in the Department of Transportation. And that's the thing. When, when earmarks were supposedly banned, of course, they all didn't go away. The big dogs in Congress, like Richard Shelby, uh, could still get theirs. Um, what we saw is the choice of where to do these local projects slid over to the executive branch. And presidents running for re-election, guess what? They started leveraging it. Right. They started doing things like, oh, by the way, I'm swinging through Ohio to cut a ribbon on a new center that we funded. President, you know, pork is on both sides. And the question right. is, who do you want to give that power to? The president who already has an insane amount of power? Right. Or are you going to give it to the legislators? And like yeah. for me, it's the answer is pretty obvious. Yeah. I, I was pretty close with Devin Nunes before he became the person we all know now. And um uh and I remember during the the fight over the Obama stimulus when Obama first came in, he offered, he made this offer to the white house folks, you know, Hey, look, you think we need to spend $800 billion, whatever the number is. Great. Why don't you do this? Why don't you give, why don't you spend 400 any way you want and then give a billion dollars to every congressman to spend as they want in their district because they know their districts better. And um, it would probably have a bigger Keynesian multiplier effect. Everyone would vote for it because they all want the billion dollars for their district. And it was, to me, it was one of those just stupid enough to 
be a good idea kind of things but of course it went nowhere because that's not how any yeah. of these, these people think um and now uh devin and i do not see eye eye on many many things um all right so where do you come down on another one that i've been rethinking i'm still in favor of but i i see more good faith good arguments on the other side than i used to is the filibuster um mm-hmm. and one of the arguments that i've heard of late that I had not really fully considered before is that one of the reasons why we've seen the growth of the administrative state and the executive branch bureaucracy and all that is that the filibuster prevents Congress from actually being able to pass legislation. And if you could get rid of that logjam, maybe Congress would take back more of its responsibility. I'm not completely convinced by it, but I think there's an argument there. What do you, where do you come down on that? Yeah, yeah, the filibuster, we all would not be talking about it had um, both parties not begun to abuse it so grossly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the number of actual filibusters where somebody takes the floor and stands up there and talks, those are exceedingly rare. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, it's simply, you know, a senator says, well, I don't like this, and, uh, you know, I'm, I might come out against cloture, and you're not going to have 60 votes. Oh, okay. So we'll just not do anything. I mean, it's become a crutch to not do anything and to make people avoid taking votes, which, you know, that's one of the perverse things that the founders could never have imagined that like, oh, my God, legislators will have incentives to not vote just in general to not vote, because if you don't vote on something, nobody can turn it into a weapon to use against you. And so I would be in favor of the filibuster being reformed so that it requires the floor to be held. Um, and I think you would see a lot few, fewer filibuster threats, and we'd at least get them um, on things that were significant. You know, if Rand Paul wants to take the floor because he doesn't like a nominee because his nominee is going to use drones to kill people without congressional authorization, oh, people overseas, of course, like, okay, that's a, that's a conversation worth having and bringing right. to salience. But to just have anonymous senators saying, well, I don't agree with, I'm not going to go for cloture. So the place grinds to a halt. That's just not, not good. So could Chuck Schumer in his infinite wisdom simply to declare, Hey, look, this is how we're going to do it now. If you want a filibuster, get out on the floor, bring your thermos because we're going to do it. Mr. Smith goes to Washington style. Yep. Yep, but the incentives for him or the incentives for even Mitch McConnell to have done that are kind of lie in the other direction. For one, you know, you're going to piss off some of your members. And for another, you run the risk of having the congressional calendar disrupted. And that's another thing that drives me crazy is this habit of having an artificially small congressional calendar. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys spend more time on airplanes flying back and forth to their districts than they do here in town. One of the things that I proposed is like, you guys should get in here and be here for like 10 straight days. Just bunch the days all up and then go, right. go home for 10 days if that's the way you want to be. Yeah. But like flying back and forth multiple times per week is just wasting time that, that's good for nobody. That would, that would be a happier way to live, I would think, right? I mean, wouldn't, I mean, I, I, I what is the incentive structure that says have, have, they have to do it this way rather than, because I personally, I would rather go for 10 days on 10 days off like an oil worker than, you know, than the way they do it now. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, think about how many times you could avoid being harassed in the airport by crazy QAnon people or rabid individuals if you're spending less time at the airport, less time just going through the whole hassle of flying and schlepping around. Yeah, there's that. I mean, for, for a lot of members, I think it's just a habit they've gotten into. They've gotten used to living that way. And, you know, no doubt many of them have, you know, arrangements with their spouses who, by the way, it used to be the case 50 years ago. You came to D.C., you brought your family. And now everybody leaves their family back home because they don't want to be accused of uh, catching Potomac fever and becoming a D.C. insider, the primaries again. So that makes it harder. You know, you dump your all your duties on your spouse to take care of the kids and run the household for 10 days while you're disappearing for 10 days. You know, a lot of people don't want to have that fight. But I don't know how you govern if you don't expand the amount of time you're here in D.C. on official duty. Or you move to doing stuff via the internet. Right. More official activities being conducted from home. That, that may be one day to deal with this. But again, a small congressional calendar means the filibuster is ever more costly and disruptive. All right. So where, where do you come down on? So uh, longtime listeners know this. The first piece I ever wrote for, that got published, first piece I ever submitted for publication, I was lucky enough to get published in the wall street journal when I was a wee research assistant at AI over 25 years ago. Um, and it was on expanding the house of representatives and there's an elite club of us. We are the, the truest remnant remnant of the remnant out there. There's, uh, Sean trendy. Uh, there's our colleague, uh, Lyman stone. There are a few others, uh, who are keeping this torch alive. Um, where do you come down on it? Um, do you think it's crazy? Do you think it would improve things? Do you think you need to reform Congress first and then you could talk about expanding it? You know, what do you think? Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think it's, uh, it's something that should be done. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the great things that it brings with us is a bunch of new members and new members historically have been vehicles for congressional reform because mm-hmm. they come to town and they don't, before they get co-opted, they look around and go, this is nuts. Yeah, We're not going yeah. along with this. We saw this 1974 uh, when Dems swamped the place. Like they, they pushed through a lot of changes because a lot of people said, We're just not going to go along with this. We got here and this is not what we signed up for. This is not what we promised the people back home. Right. So that alone brings the advantage. But yeah, just the raw math. I mean, the number of constituents that an individual legislator is supposed to represent is mind-blowing these days and it's only going to get worse because we're going to keep having more and more people in this country right right um i also i mean i would love to see one of you guys who knows how to do the adding of short columns of small numbers that i can't even do figure out um what it does to things like polarization and and gerrymandering and these kinds of things because you can't have crazy, I mean, like just as a mathematical point, if the, and obviously this would be way too small, but if every congressional district had a hundred people in it, they would not have crazy shapes by definition, because you just couldn't come up with a gerrymander that makes any sense at that level, because, uh, that unit is, is going to be so representative of those actual hundred people. And I think that principle as you scale up still holds true that some of the craziest stuff you get in gerrymandering and all the rest um, disappears if you increase the number of house members. Um, But 
the of all the reforms I believe in, I have to think that this is the least likely one to ever get passed by Congress. Am I crazy about that? Uh, it, I mean, I think it's tough insofar as it raises a lot of distributional questions. You know, okay, which states get more? Mm-hmm. And if they get more, where are these people coming from within those states? Are we making them at-large members? Are we going to re- redo the the districting? It just, you know, there's a lot of that. And that's, I mean, you see that sort of thing with a much simpler question, like, should we have D.C. or Puerto Rico go through the statehood process? Right. You know, the first thing that legislators' minds go to is like, wait, that'll tip the balance in the Senate. How's that going to work? Right. And so, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's certainly a big challenge, but, you know, it doesn't mean it's not worth doing, trying. Yeah. I mean, one thing you could just do is sort of like, you know how they used to do with like, Brazilian or Italian currency is because of inflation every now and then they would just lop off a zero or two zeros. You could just add a, z- <laughs> add a zero to everyone's congressional delegation and then say, go figure it out, you know? Um, but all right. So all right, before we move on to whiskey, uh, very quickly, the, the, one of the arguments you hear from progressives the most, and it's deeply entangled in electoral college stuff and, Basically, the problem, what I don't think is a problem, but the problem of California is that the Senate is undemocratic and that it needs to be reformed. And you get these people who do these mathematical equations about how many, how much representation in Congress someone from Wyoming gets versus someone from California. They almost never, interestingly, the progressives never do this formula between, say, Texas and Vermont. It's always between a very small red state and a very large blue state, but such as it is. Um, where do you, you know, how do you see that issue? Uh, is it, a, an, uh, it feels to me like it's a dead letter, just given how the constitution is written, you're not going to be able to amend away the Senate. But, um, uh, if you think that's a real concern, how, what would be your way of addressing that concern? If you don't think it's a real concern, that'd be good to know too. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, the whole point is the Senate is supposed to have people representing their states as a whole. And, um, you know, right now we have 50 states, so two for each state. And uh, so I have not been um, a fan of the conversations about, oh, well, you know, we need to swell the Senate uh, and retilt the balance so that states get more senators based upon on population. I think you do something like that and you're going to uh, you're going to lose something in, in the process. And I think it might actually kind of stoke um, partisan swings even more intense, uh, which uh, I don't think anybody benefits from that per se. Right. Uh, And it's true. I mean, you know, senators do operate against, you know, vis-a-vis one another in a much more egalitarian fashion. Uh, They do have to do a lot more bargaining. Uh, but that would certainly go away. I mean, if you just gave 10 senators to California, um, you know, the place would slide into pure majoritarianism. Okay, so people keep wondering why I bring up whiskey. And the reason is, is that you, low 11 years ago, uh, wrote Whiskey, A Global History. And... Um, uh, whether you spell whiskey with the E or not, whiskey is one of my favorite things. Um, and uh, um, so let's just sort of, and you, 
Do you still run the blog on the on 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 whiskey? Or I do, I do. Alcoholreviews.com has been online continuously since 1998. It's very impressive. As someone who started in the blogging world in 1998 as well, um uh it's uh it's nice to know that some of us still survive. Um so uh what all right, well, let's start from the beginning. Uh what's your favorite whiskey? I, I don't mean the specific brand. I mean, are yeah, you a yeah. Scotch whiskey guy, an Irish whiskey guy? Are you one of these American bourbon guys? I mean, you know, where, what, what is your general aesthetic approach? You don't have to denigrate anything, but where do you come down? Right. Yeah. Um, well, I, I love all, all types of whiskey, you know, the Scotch and the Irish and the bourbons and the, uh, the other odd ducks that are out there these days. Um, and I'm kind of a seasonal drinker. Mm-hmm. So when it's cold and wet outside, I love a intense peaty scotch mm-hmm. uh in the middle of july not so much i'm more likely to go for a bourbon on the rocks mm-hmm. um i love rise um and irish whiskey has made such a wonderful resurgence in the last 20 years there's some beautiful stuff out there like like red breast for example yeah. which is absolutely top so i i see beauty in every category and i drink i drink them all no no look i, I respect it i mean you can have the same philosophy that you have towards your kids is you love them all but you know sometimes <laughs> you're in a more in a mood to hang out with one of them than another one um but uh um it's you mentioned the irish whiskey thing so i first started drinking whiskey my wife who was not my wife at the time introduced me to jameson's back in the day and i started drinking it as a way to limit my intake because i didn't like it very much and i thought it would, it would, <laughs> it would, it would force me to sip it and the problem is I so aggressively acquired the taste that now it's, it's, I have to avoid Jameson's cause I can drink it so easily. Um, but it does feel like the Irish whiskey market in particular has just exploded in the last, you know, it used to be Jameson's was kind of had this low class kind of not, low class is probably wrong, but sort of mass market every mm. man's Irish whiskey kind of thing. And now even Jameson's has all of these different spinoff things. Um, is there a reason for it? Is it just because it's just so good? Or is it that because when the Irish stop killing each other, they can get back to what they're what were put on this earth to do, which is to produce wonderful brown liquor? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, you're, you're spot on at the, uh, at the end of the 19th century, more whiskey was being produced by the Irish than anyone, uh-huh. but various things, um, tripped them up. I mean, they were heavily reliant for their export market on the UK. So when the troubles came around, uh, and really started to peak, they were shut out of a lot of markets. That's why, you know, you go to India, what's popular? It's not Irish whiskey, it's Scotch-type whiskey. Same thing with Japan. The map of the British Empire, Scotch followed it all over the place where Irish was largely shut out. And uh, yeah, the brown spirits category um, has, the demand for it has just grown since the 1980s. And uh, Irish, you know, finally decided to wake up and get in on it. And mm-hmm. Because yeah, they were down to... Uh, three distilleries 20 years ago it was a uh, bush mills northern ireland uh distillery jameson and and middleton mm-hmm. and uh now there are, are are numerous irish distilleries and every single one of them is producing products at a variety of price points and also uh, just a variety of styles which yeah. is great there's actually one called connemara which was produced by cooley distillery and it's a it's a peated irish whiskey Hmm. So if you taste it without knowing any better, you'd think you're drinking scotch. Yeah. Huh. I got to say, I, I make a lot of jokes about how I don't like the PD stuff. I tend not to like the 
like the 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 peatier stuff because it tastes like you made tea from a lawnmower bag. But uh, I've been drinking more of it of late because again, it it if if you sip it, if you drink it properly, um, its charm comes out more. Um, but I t- I have a question for you. Um, a few years ago, actually for an AI thing, I was meeting with some of our young leaders council thing in Atlanta. And, um, and I was sitting next to this guy who was at a normal kind of young, successful business guy's job, but he was trying to exit out of it to become a full-time distiller. And he was a partial, uh, developer of some big new, you know, whiskey distillery that they were putting together in, in, in Georgia. And I was interested in it because I knew a little bit about some other people who were doing that. And I started asking questions and plus it just interested in the topic. And he said to me, I said, so are you, are you producing anything right now? And he says, well, we're, we got to age everything. So not really the only product we're actually selling right now is white whiskey. Mm-hmm. And it was a phrase I had never heard. And I, and he clearly didn't like me continuing to ask questions about it. And <laughs> Basically, as I understood it, and you correct me if I'm wrong about this, white whiskey isn't a thing. It's just basically the liquor that you produce from a distillery before you can... It's, it's it, vodka, basically, right? Um, uh, and Or it's like pre-moonshine moonshine. And, but they figure calling it white whiskey would give it a more, more of a cachet, even though it's basically flavorless. Is, is, is that right? Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it it differs a little from vodka insofar as uh, what goes into it in order to be able to stay in that whiskey category is a, a little more limited. You can't throw in stuff like sugar beets, um, right. which you can do with vodka. But yeah, it's unaged. It's a white spirit. And, um, you know, they were also trying to pick up to some degree on the, the, the cachet of moonshine. Moonshine became cool. But yeah. moonshine, by definition, is illicitly made liquor. So yeah, well, we'll call it We'll call it white whiskey. Right, right. Um, so how, how, what do you think of the, the, the Japanese scotches? Every now and then I have one. I can never remember their names. But I have to say I'm, I'm, I'm fairly impressed with some of the ones that I've had. I mean, where do they, where do they rank mm-hmm. in, in the global order these days? Oh, yeah. Well, they've, they, they, they've, uh, they learned directly from the Scots, uh, started making the stuff uh, close to 100 years ago. And, uh, you know, it's like so much else that's done in Japan. It's uh, meticulously made. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was uh, in the last five years, you know, one of these annual world whiskey competitions, a Japanese whiskey was named the top. And there was no dispute. Nobody was like, oh, that's just a sop to make Japan feel good. It was like, no, they make really good stuff. And I've had some of it. And um, yeah, I, I can't name a bad Japanese whiskey. Yeah, yeah. Um. Are there any countries other than the, I mean, other than the Irish, the, the Scots and the Japanese who are like in the game these days? Yeah. 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 Well, um, I mean, Canada has always been in the game, but um, so, they've yeah. not, they've not played historically. They didn't play at kind of a, the, the super premium level. I mean, a lot of what they produced to us is blended stuff, Seagram seven and Canadian mm-hmm. club and that sort of stuff, which, which sold like gangbusters, but you know, the whole movement um, in much of the Western world has been to drink less and drink better. Mm-hmm. And so we've got the Canadians now who are putting out s- single malt type things. Yeah. 
um, and much, much higher quality and much higher price point. And yeah, every other country uh, that I can think of is making whiskey. Germans are making whiskey. France are making whiskey. India, um, they are making some really good stuff. There's a company there called Amrut, A-M-R-U-T, which they produce some beautiful scotches that tend to fall between 60 and $150 price range. Uh, you can you can get them or in, in DC. Um, I know that in the, like the 19th century, the English made whiskey, but how come I never hear the phrase English whiskey anymore? I mean, w- w- what happened? Yeah, yeah, no. Um, well, it was a competitive issue. I mean, uh, both the Scots and the Irish were cranking out so much. Um, in fact, the, the the English were buying lots of. The, the raw whiskey being made by the Irish and the Scots and redistilling it into gin. And so mm-hmm. they're much more strongly associated with gin production. That's been kind of their niche. But uh, yeah, certainly they do, uh, they do produce some whiskeys. They also have gotten back in the game a bit. But, you know, when your geographic neighbors are putting out so much that is so good. Right. Um, but there's no, there's, it's not like why, why is America beating Canada at, at oranges? A production of citrus crops, right? It's because we have warm places. There's not a, there's nothing yeah, geographically yeah. or climatologically about England that is so different from Scotland and Ireland that they couldn't produce it, right? Yeah, no, no. There's nothing. There's nothing like that. It's a, it's just a, it's a commercial decision. And uh, you know, to be clear, there are some English uh, whiskeys out there, but um, not many. Yeah. All right, uh, we can. I, I, I have more. I have more brown liquor questions, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, we've gone a ways. Um, is there just one last one? Because it's one of the things I I really do like on the on the Scott on the single malts are the the sort of sherry cask finish ones. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, um, and so, I mean, I know Balvini. I know you know the the various Glenmorangie things. Um, is there is there one that you know of that is sort of the next step up that with that approach? Um, Cause they all seem to be about the same price point. It's like, you know, the, the, the Balvini, the, the, the Glenmorangie, the McAllen, the ones that do these sherry cask or, or port cask finish, they're all from like 45 to $65. Is there a famous one I am unaware of that is like next level or a Japanese one or anything? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, certainly, um, McAllen has released some more expensive ones that have uh, various barrel finishes, including sherry. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Bowmore actually was a pioneer in this. They, Jim McEwen, who ran the distillery back in the early '90s, uh, he experimented experimented a lot with that. And Bowmore is still doing various expressions along that line. Mm-hmm. And if you want to, uh, you know, try the American version, um, Angel's Envy is mm-hmm. bourbon finished in port casks man it's magnificent oh i might try that because i'm I, i've always been partly because of some grave mistakes i made related to bourbon in my youth um i have <laughs> never really gotten fully back on the bourbon train and it angers many of my friends um but maybe i'll give which that which a which brand which brand sickened you um there were there were I don't want to sing out, single out, (laughs) Um, but you know, like I, I still to this day, like I can't, I can't really enjoy Jack Daniels. I can't enjoy a lot of those things. Just there's something about that taste that 
Um, mm-hmm. Reminds me of regret. Um, so, yes. So it might be, you know, probably like most Americans, your experience of bourbon was more towards the sweet side, the more heavily corn based bourbons. And so uh-huh. if you went for something that was more wheat based or more rye based, for example, Old Forester is a heavily rye based bourbon mm-hmm. whiskey. And if you you put it, you would never mistake it for like a Jim Beam or a Jack Ray, that sort of stuff. I mean, the flavor profile is just different. Right. And so it may not bring back some of those bad memories. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, Kevin Kosar, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. And I uh, hope to have you back. And um, people can check the show notes for links to the book, to the report, to all that stuff. And um, um, it's great having you. Thank you so much, Jonah. Okay, so Kevin has left the conversation. Um, uh, I, I I hope I've for the people with the bingo cards. Um, I hope you cleared out a lot of the um, of the low hanging fruit um, for themes on this podcast today. Um, and I apologize if I seemed a little disjointed. We were supposed to do this thing at nine this morning. I completely spaced it, and uh, Nick called me. Now, of course, I ignored his call because that's what one does. And then I saw in the car while I was driving in to be on time to record this at 10 that he uh, uh, was trying to inform me that this was supposed to be at nine. So I raced back home and I and I did this. And um, my apologies to, to Kevin for being uh, tardy getting started and for being somewhat disjointed. Um, but um, I still, still think it was a useful and important conversation to have. And there are themes that I will be harping on again and again in the near and and medium future. Um, Please come on by the dispatch uh, dispatch dispatch.com for all our stuff. Oh, and one of the reasons why I'm so flabbergasted, I was going to mention this is that I am uh, taking my daughter on a secret trip to Austin, Texas, where I just learned the weather is abysmal, which is blowing up all of my plans. Um, But by the time you people hear this, um, we will already be there, so that I don't mind letting the cat out of the bag. Um, it's her birthday, and one of the things we like to do are these surprise trips where she has no idea she's going anywhere, and then we go someplace. So if people have uh, rainy day suggestions for what to do um, in Austin, please shoot them my way. Um, if anybody would like to send me or the staff of the dispatch any of the scotches or brown liquors mentioned on today's podcast, um, I would rather you become a full paid, uh, member of the dispatch community, but as a consolation prize, if you wanted to do that, I would not be upset. Or if you want to do it as a both and rather than either or kind of Kierkegaardian thing, that would be great too. Um, and, uh, what else? So anyway, I don't know what's going to happen with the G file or the Friday ruminant because of this adventure I'm going on with my daughter, but I plan on providing some version of both. Um, but, uh, the time, place and manner of these things has yet to be worked out. Um, and you know, it dawned on me listening to, uh, John Podoritz drone on about how important iTunes reviews and whatnot are, um, for, uh, his niche podcast over a commentary uh, Amiya, I have not mentioned this in a very long time in part because I've grown to have contempt for the iTunes rankings, knowing what I know about the actual numbers vis-a-vis the rankings that they show on there. Um, and there's very little correspondence between the, um, 
the actual number of downloads and where you appear on those rankings. Um, I shouldn't say very little, but I think after you're out of the top 10, uh, it's probably uh, measuring something other than actual downloads. But uh, it is still good marketing for podcasts. And um, as Ed Koch used to say, my mother always told me it was better to win than to lose. Um, so I think it's similar to podcasts. If you could give us a five-star review, that would be fantastic. If you could give us a four-and-a-half-star review, um, you know, you'll break Pippa's heart, but we'll take it. Um, if you don't want to give us something on, in that area, um, uh, forget I said anything, as Rich Lowry likes to say. But uh, the best thing you could do for us is become a me- become a paying member of the dispatch community. Um, and by, uh, spreading the word about what we're doing and how we're doing it and why we're doing it. And we think that we've, you know, the, the, the market that we identified 18 months ago when we launched this thing, um, it turns out it's, we think it's bigger than we anticipated and getting bigger. And, um, we are trying to figure out how to grow with it and seize these opportunities as best we can. And the best thing for doing that is just the simple old fashioned word of mouth of, uh, people who get what we're doing and believe in it and want to help out. So if you can help out, that's great. Um, and if you just want to like sit in the cheap seats and listen to the podcast and read the free stuff, that's fine too. Um, it just, you know, you break my heart. Uh, so with that, uh, thank you for everything. Thanks to this. Thanks to, to Nick and guy. And, um caleb and i will see you next time no you won't this is a podcast Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.